Holiday House Books for Young Readers, Peachtree Publishing Company, and Pixel and Link present Andrea Wang, author of Lily and the Language of Tea, and Terry Gattazus Jennings, author of The Little House of Hope, in conversation with publisher and editor Neil Porter. Hi, I'm Neil Porter, and today we are welcoming Andrea Wang, author of Lily in the Language of Tea, and Terry Katasus Jennings, author of The Little House of Hope. Andrea is an award-winning author of several children's books, including Watercrest, which won a Caldecott Medal, an Asia Pacific American Award for Literature, and a Newbery Honor. Her work explores culture, creative thinking, and identity. Terry is also an award-winning author of children's fiction and nonfiction books, including the Definitely Gita chapter book series and Polly Murray, The Life of a Pioneering Feminist and Civil Rights Activist. Much of her work is inspired by her experience as a Cuban-American. Today, Andrea and Terry will be discussing the immigrant experience in their newest picture books, Luli in the Language of Tea and The Little House of Hope. Let's start with inspiration. What prompted you both to write Luli and The Little House of Hope? Andrea, why don't you go first? Oh, thank you, Neil. And um, just first of all, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I wrote Luli and the Language of Tea because I heard somewhere, and I don't have the exact source, but I did hear that the word for tea in many languages was similar. And so that sort of piqued my curiosity and I wanted to find out more and I love research. So I went about looking for the answer and discovered that it was true that all the uh, words for tea in over 200 languages kind of trace back to the Chinese word for tea. Since, you know, the, the story goes is that tea was invented or discovered in China over you know, 4,700 years ago when like tea leaves blew into the emperor's cup of boiling water and he decided to drink it for whatever reason, (laughs) which I probably would not have done. (laughs) But now we have tea and as tea spread across the world because it was exported, then they took the word for tea back to those countries and it morphed as it went. And so I was really intrigued by that since as we all are, we're word nerds, right? I love the origin of words and and how they sound. So I decided to write a book that features 10 kids from different countries, none of whom speak English, but the word for tea brings them all together. That's great. And Terry? Oh, Neil, thank you for having me uh, too. And Andrea, I am just so delighted to be here with you. Um, we were talking about, actually, Andrew and I were talking about the inspiration for this book earlier. Um, it's, it's in the author's note. And um, there was this realtor that told me uh, once that he, uh, here's uh, air quotes, that he didn't rent for, to Mexicans because they lived three or four families to a house and they trashed the place. And my first reaction um, was surprised. Now, why would he, you know, why would he say that in front of someone that he knew was Cuban? And then I was mad because he was generalizing. And then I stood on things. And as I stood, I realized, wait a minute, I was one of those immigrants. Um, Three families lived in our house and we never trashed it. And we all became citizens and contributed to our community. So, you know, we weren't the exception. Uh, We were the rule. And there are so many people, though, that feel like that realtor that I wanted to set the, the record straight. I wanted to show young readers 
um, responsible immigrants uh, to show some of the reasons why people leave everything behind uh, and come to another country and um, come to the United States. And I also wanted to show the power of a helping hand, what that kind of power has on an immigrant family. What a lovely answer. Uh, let's talk about language. Andrea, how did you come up with the, all the different languages to include in the story? It's interesting. I actually looked back at my notes and I had started out with a different set of 10 languages. And as I wrote them down and actually I drew a round table, um, kind of like from an aerial viewpoint, and I spread the kids around it, I realized that I had far more languages from Europe than anywhere else, you know, so there were a few in Asia, and then the rest were in in Europe. And I thought, no, we really need to, you know, I really want to show how global tea is, and how, you know, this word is very similar in all the continents, you know, in countries in all the different continents. And so I very methodically sort of went about researching and listening to the word for tea spoken in in many different languages and ended up with these 10. So, and I also thought it would be really cool to show languages that don't use the Roman alphabet Um, because we do have the different scripts shown in the book, uh, the Chinese character for tea, the Hindi um, for chai, et cetera. So I, you know, love the beauty of those different scripts as well. It's also great because the transliteration is also there, so kids can actually sound out the words, even if they're not familiar with the alphabet. Yeah. Uh, Terry, let's talk a little bit about your book, which has two simultaneous editions coming out, both English and Spanish. Well, it was was a wonderful thing that you let me translate La Casita. And, and, and I think it's very important because in La Casita, in La Casita de Esperanza, um, immigrant children can see themselves and they can read in their own language. But the, the best thing about that was that I've had some of my creative nonfiction books translated and um, I didn't get to translate them. And it was as if somebody had taken my, my first child and and taking it from my arms and taking it somewhere else to raise because I didn't get to finish that job. And I was just very grateful that, that uh, you asked me to do the translation. Of course, my Spanish and probably the reason that I didn't get to translate the scientific, you know, the science books was because my Spanish is the Spanish of a 12 year old. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's not fantastic, but I had a fairy God translator. Ada del Risco, and she helped me keep, keep things correct. Now, even before um, I sent it to Ada, though, I sent it to one of my cousins who, you know, whose Spanish is impeccable. And she told me, hey, you've used some of the Cuban things, uh, some things that, that uh, other Latin American countries or Spanish countries may not use. And so, um, but we talked about it and uh, we kept the Cuban vibe. And that was that that makes all the difference in the world. And one of the things that happened was that when we uh, did when Ada and I did the uh, translation, some of the phrases when I did them in Spanish, it was like, whoa, this is so much better than what I had come up with in English. And we were able to come up with an even more parallel 
language in English. And, you know, I, I'm just like you, uh, Andrew, you know, Wardenard, it's so important to find the exact right thing. And I love the idea that these books, I think, are the best of both worlds, um, the bo- best of both languages. And a review said that the Spanish was lyrical. So I think um, we, did, we did a pretty good job. When we were first beginning to edit, I did not have the book, the girl in the, uh, the main character uh, be called Esperanza. I started out with Estrella. I had, you know, the vibe was a shining, uh, a shining star, a uh, star of hope, but it was not just hope. And I think through the edit, editing process, we came up with the idea that hope was the heart of the, uh, of the book. And thank goodness, there's a word in Spanish for hope, and it's also a name, Esperanza. So it was perfect. And then when we did the title of the Spanish version, we did not capitalize Esperanza as a uh, name. We used the lowercase, which means just regular old hope. So it has two different meanings, in a sense, one the girl's name and also obviously hope, because the book is about hope. Uh, thanks for that. The book is described as semi-autobiographical. Terry, how close is the story to your own experience as a refugee? Um, it's very close. It's very close. But we were the recipients of the kindness. Uh, we were not the instigators because my family and, and my uncle and his family came to the United States about a year or a year and a half before we did. And they were the ones that opened up their home to us. Now, my aunt's name is Conchita, and I named uh, the sister who comes from Cuba after her. Uh, but Conchita's story in the book is an, an, an amalgamation of, of my father's story. In the book, I say that Conchita's husband was taken by the government. And what actually happened was that my father was jailed by the Cuban government during the Bay of Pigs. And uh, by some miracle, he was released. And most people who were um, jailed during the Bay of Pigs were not released. Uh, they were never heard from again. But family lore says that the one and only Che Guevara, uh, that, you know, is uh, an old Cuban legend, um, he was the president of the, uh, of the Cuban National Bank where my father worked. And he, you know, family lore says that he was the one that caused my father to be released. Um, I haven't found any proof of that. Uh, Speaking about doing research, I have not found that. I have looked for it, but have not found it. So it could be just that. It could be lore. But anyway, he was released. But the fear of his getting taken and never seeing him again was what brought us to the United States. So I brought that into Conchita's story. Uh, In the book, the family makes room for her and her baby in the garage. In the real book, we made room for my aunt's brother, his wife, and their baby in the garage. Um, The the smells of cooking were um, an absolute part of that, of of La Casita, of the little house, uh, because my aunt was a wonderful cook. Now, my mother, if that had been my mother's house, we would have smelled burning all the time. But my aunt, she (laughs) was amazing. And Neil, now you love uh, that description of the, the house smelling like old wet socks. And that did not happen in La Casita. That happened when we rented a house in Richmond. 
It was an old house. It was a shabby house and it had an attic, which I loved because I went up there to write and to read forbidden stories. But um, but it did have a peculiar smell. And maybe it was peculiar because in Cuba, we never had addicts. But I remember, I remember that smell. And um, it was it was a house that had the tattered furniture from the um, from the church basement. And um, one of the first things that my mother did when we had a little bit of extra money was to borrow a sewing machine and buy some material to make a slip cover for one of the couches because it, it was rough. <laughs> I love hearing these stories. I didn't know the Che Guevara story. That's amazing. Um, I'm really glad we're doing this. So I, every time I, we speak, I find out little little details that I hadn't known before. And the other question, uh, it's not really a question, but I know we went back and forth about when to set the book, because obviously your experience took place in the early 60s. We're now in the 2020s. What uh, I found so interesting is that uh, what took place in the 60s, uh, the reasons may have been different, but the issues are still very much the same, don't you think? Absolutely. And it was it was so funny because you questioned it at one point and, you know, what would what would an immigrant have done? And so I went back and I researched, okay, what would an immigrant have done back in 1961? And I called the neighbor who used to work for INS and all this. And then I showed it to him and he says, no, no, this is not happening in 1961. This is happening now. And it was kind of one of those, oh yeah, you know, this could work um, both ways. And I I think things, uh, the reasons that people leave their country haven't changed. Uh, unfortunately, that's still happening. Wars are still happening. And um, and then, you know, the, the experience, the need to come and what you experience when you come to a new place hasn't changed. So, yeah, I think I think this this works works now. I think many people can see themselves in this. And I think that this touches more than uh, Latin American immigrants. I think this is the, the immigrant experience. And not then, not now. It's just a universal experience. Um, well, Andrea, since you love research so much, can you tell us a little bit about the research that went into the back matter at the end of, end of your book? Actually, it's kind of funny because I didn't think you were going to let me include all the back matter in the book <laughs> because it's substantially longer than the text of the story itself. <laughs> Um, and, but I had a lot of fun. I was researching the tea drinking customs in these 10 different countries. And, you know, I would first Google it and then just it, drill down and read all the articles and try and find the ones that were most, um, not reputable, but, you know, that were actually written by people who were from that country, um, tour guides even. And, you know, trying to find those little snippets of information that kids would find interesting, like the fact that there's um, tea that's called gunpowder tea, but there's no gunpowder in it. It's just rolled into tiny little pellets that look like gunpowder. Um, and so I assembled a bunch of facts and and tried to find the ones that were most appealing to kids. Um, and I also dug into the census records because I wanted to show how many immigrants from each continent were living in the United States at the time of the last census, which was 2019, I think. 
And, you know, I think there is a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric recently. And for me, it was important to show that there are millions of immigrants from Europe as well, (laughs) as well as all the other countries. And Mm -hmm. so we are really a nation of immigrants Mm -hmm. Um, and that we all have this shared, shared universal experience of drinking tea. There's also a map that uh, that shows major uh, tea drinking places in the world. Yes, there are maps in the back. And um, I talk a little bit about which country uh, has the most tea drinkers. I do have a little note about why we didn't include England, which is a huge tea drinking culture. But obviously, they speak English, so it didn't really work with the... the the story um, of all the the non-English speakers coming together. But yeah, there are uh, a bunch of wonderful maps that Heiwan um, illustrated and all the kids are there and the pronunciations of the kids' names as well. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and I have a bibliography on my website for anyone who's wants to know a little bit more about where my sources are. It's are great. We, we even kind of extended it onto the end papers where we show show the various vessels for drinking tea that are used throughout the world, which was a lot of fun that Heiwan contributed. Um, So let's get to my favorite topic, food. Uh, (laughs) Food is obviously a very significant element in different cultures and in both of these books, and you highlight like this beautifully in your books. Andrea, uh, over to you. I am pretty much food obsessed. So I love to write about food I love to write about the way it bridges cultures, um, generations, all sorts of divides. My parents um, were immigrants from China. My mother uh, was part of the diaspora that went to Taiwan, and she came here to the United States in the mid to late 60s uh, to go to nursing school. And my dad was part of the diaspora that went to Hong Kong. And he was able to come over at around the same time and also attend graduate school in the Boston area. So that's how they met. And I just remember that whoever came over, anyone who came to the house was always offered tea and snacks. And often they were like snacks that I would have, I thought as a child were strange, like watermelon seeds. That's a big thing in the Chinese culture, like to to crack open watermelon seeds and, and eat those. Um, but candies as well. And so that was just automatic hospitality. Everybody was offered tea and snacks. And so that made a big impression on me. And, you know, it wasn't just to their Chinese friends who came over. It was to everyone. Uh, I'm already starting to get thirsty and hungry. And (laughs) Terry is going to make me even thirstier and hungry. Absolutely. I, I love what you said, Andrea, about uh, food being a bridge between the cultures. And I, I've used that like in, in author visits, talking to the, stu- to, to the young readers and saying, hey, you know, you know how your mom makes you says, hey, you have to try it, at least try this, you know, try this food and you may like it, you know, and of course, you think of something that you're not going to like, and then you, you actually do try it and, and you like it. And that's the way that you should approach an immigrant, try it, you like it, or try him, you like, you know, try the idea of being a friend with an immigrant, because like food, you may think that something is really weird, but no, it's something that can be delicious. 
a mimogram can be a wonderful friend. Um, but yes, Neil, I cannot write about Cuba without writing about food. Um, even in um, my Definitely Dominguita chapter books, the kids are always talking about food because um, I don't know if Cuban food is so delicious. Um, and by the way, I do make the best black beans in the universe um, certified. <laughs> I'll be and, right over. Yeah. <laughs> and my flan is not too bad either. Oh, I love flan. Me too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but it, I don't know if it's that delicious or if it's that it's what you grew up with, you know, mm-hmm. when you grow up with something, it's what you know, and it's what you love. And the smells of food and the memories of food is a thread that holds you together. Um, you know, when I travel, I remember the food that I ate even more than I remember, you know, the sites that the food always sticks. Oh, I remember that salmon in uh, in Seattle, you know, it, it is what I remember more than anything else. I do have to say that Cuban food, I, I don't know what, what Cuban food is, because, you know, uh, the Spaniards came to Cuba and killed all the native people. And so I think Cuban food is, um, is Spanish food. It's, pretty, it's a lot of Latin America is like that, that the, the main food is Spanish food. And then in many of the um, countries in the continent, you still have some additions from the native cultures. But in Cuba, there couldn't have been because they really did annihilate everybody. So, right, right. So you have cafe con leche, which is certainly something that you absolutely Spain and beans and sofrito. Tell us about sofrito for those. Yeah. So, so, sofrito is um, is onions and garlic and peppers. Uh, sauteed in oil until it's, you know, kind of real light and real wilted. Uh, and that's the base for for just about every kind of uh, of Cuban food. You know, if you have to come up with any Cuban, with do anything, you start with a base of sofrito. It's kind of like the, it's not the roux in New Orleans cooking, but it has that same kind of vibe to it. It's a beginning of whatever you're going to cook in Cuba and, and I suspect in Spain as well. That's great. It's kind of like the uh, Asian ginger scallion base. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Cooking a lot of Asian food, and I keep going back to my ginger and scallions. Yep, can't and go plantain wrong. and plantains, which which are obviously indigenous to Cuba. That's something that you wouldn't have found in in, in Spanish cooking. Uh, yes, you're right about that, and um, that is they are for me. The only way that I can make plantains is when I go find them in the frozen section in the grocery store because uh, I have not been able, you have to wait until the plantains are actually so brown and so black and so soft. And maybe I just don't have the patience, but, um, but yeah, but they are delicious and um, they really taste good when you get them from somewhere else. So how do you make them? Um, you have to, you, you really do have to wait until they're rotten. Huh. And, really? Yeah. Oh, honest to goodness, they have to be totally black and mushy. And then you slice them um, diagonally and then you saute them in butter and then they caramelize and then they're wonderful. But it may be that I'm my mother's daughter and I always burn them or uh, maybe I don't wait long enough for them to be rotten enough that they're still always a little crunchy and not soft. But 
gallimosis. If you get them at the uh, in the frozen food section, you put them in the microwave for a few minutes, and it's perfect. That's great. Come to New York. We have plenty of uh, of fresh plantains here, Terry, and oh, good near near my apartment. Even um, let's turn to the illustrators of your books. Both of both of the books I think are blessed with really talented illustrators, and they are both immigrants from other cultures. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how they contributed their their stories to to the to the illustrations and ultimately to the books, Andrea? Sure. Heiwan Yum is the illustrator for Luli and the Language of Tea, and she is an immigrant from South Korea. And I believe she came to the States when um, to study or when she was, you know, a young adult. And she actually herself went to ESL classes. So this book really resonated with her on that level. And she drew her friend that she met in ESL class as the character of the playroom teacher, Miss Hirokane, which I find just lovely because the name Miss Hirokane comes from my good friend, <laughs> who author uh, Debbie Michiko Florence, and that's her maiden name. So both of our friends are represented by this character in the book. And uh, I, I, she said she learned a lot from it, um, you know, the different languages and, and how tea is so similar. And she uh, has tea drinking rituals too, very lovely ones that she says uh, she, when she drinks tea, it sort of transports her to a different place. You know, it really... And I think that's evoked in the story in, in some ways as well. The kids are all remembering their own homelands while they drink the tea. Mm-hmm. Lovely. And Terry, what about Raul? Uh, Raul Colon is from Puerto Rico. And um, there was already a bond there because Puerto Rico and Cuba uh, were Span- Spanish colonies and they, they shared that history. So, I think that vibe of um, of the, the you know the two islands is is in Raúl's DNA, but his uh, wife is Cuban as well. So like his, he says that Cubans are his people, and he portrays them beautifully. You know, I don't know that you can say that there's a Cuban look, um, but if there is, he got it because I could recognize the people in the book as you know they could have been my neighbors. Uh, the father looks like my father. And of course, Neil, you'll remember the, my question, um, uh, Raul pro- portrayed these immigrants as uh, having dignity. They, they were not shabby at all. And I, I questioned that. I thought, mm, you know, the, the book kind of says that they're shabby. But I think Neil and Raul had made that decision already. And I'm so happy that they did because it adds layers to the story. You, you wonder, okay, so what was their backstory? What was these people's backstory uh so much more than if we had just followed the you know the normal thing oh yeah these immigrants come in and they look bad and then they get better um i am going to step into a place where i have absolutely no knowledge but um maybe i can talk about the palette and when you first see the house the house is in browns and in in dark greens and gloomy and when you first see the the um, the Mexican family coming from Mexico, their landscape is brown and green and dark yellows, very both very gloomy. And then 
the colors start coming in and then the brightness starts coming in. And at the very end, it is just absolutely a riot of color and, and there's hope and there's happiness. And that is just the most wonderful thing to see the evolution of their story through color. Um, when Neil told me that Howard would be the illustrator, I was over the moon, but um, it paled by comparison to when I saw the, the actual spreads. And, and uh, he's got this one technique that uh, I will never see a, a background in the same way because he layers several colors and he works in colored pencils. Uh, and he's layered several colors, and then he takes something. What does he call it? A, a raker, or um, yeah, he has a specific tool for it. He was showing. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's a tool that's kind of like a comb, and then he rakes that across whatever he just drew, and so then you see the lay, the the colors below. So it's like it has swirls on it, and it's beautiful. And I, you know, when you see any other background now, you say, "Oh gosh, it's missing something," because. His is so vibrant, it's so warm. So yeah, I love that. I love that. I think if uh, someone sees the cover of the book, they're gonna they they can't pass by it and not open it. And then once you open it, hey, you know, you hope that the magic continues. I think one of the my favorite things about my job is getting to choose artists who I think are appropriate for a given text and uh, I don't get it right 100% of the time but it's so gratifying when you see a book come to life and you play a hunch and it really really uh, comes out beautifully and I think that's the case of both of these books. Um, Neil when you uh, asked me what I thought of, of having Haywan be the illustrator you described her drawings as being charming and that's exactly what they are, they're just so inviting and welcoming and utterly charming. And she works in colored pencils, too. And I think it works really well with all the young children in this playroom. They're, some of them are coloring. So there's sort of these, yeah, these parallels. The two, two illustrators who use the same medium uh, produce such dramatically different results and both completely appropriate for the text at hand. Uh, so both of your stories emphasize the idea of different people connecting over shared experience. What do you think this? Why do you think this idea is so important to highlight in stories for children, Andrea? I think it's really important because we are ultimately more alike than different, and so I keep coming back to this theme in in many of my books. I think watercresses very much about that too. And, um, you know, once we normalize and humanize people from all different countries and races and, you know, immigration status and whatever, you know, I think that we're promoting kindness and acceptance. And so I think that's ultimately what I'm, I'm working towards, (laughs) Um, it's a kinder world. <laughs> and something that's desperately needed given given the events of the last several months. And I think that's another reason these books are really important. Terry, what about you? Yeah, I don't think I can say it any better than Andrea. That's exactly what I'm uh that what I'm trying to to do is to normalize and to make sure that um that the young readers see that um we're all the same. We are all human. 
And when you, when you, you share your experiences and you say, well, yeah, this is the way I was. And when you invite uh, a child of privilege to see that story and to see Esperanza and her brother uh, making breakfast, making their own breakfast, doing their homework, their parents working, it's just like everybody else. They're not different. They don't have two heads because they're immigrants. You know, the uh, immigrant children can see themselves in the story and see themselves as having worth. Um, so that Andrea said it, you know, said it best. Uh, we want to normalize the immigrants and make sure that we all know that we're all human beings, that we're all human beings. We all have the same dreams and same wants and the same hopes. Yeah. I think that that is really, really well put. And one of the things I love about Little House of Hope is that, you know, these are disparate people from different families and they all come together and the whole, it's implied. I, what I love about picture books is a lot is not spoken or even necessarily illustrated. It's implied. And you have the sense of this well-oiled machine, this house that just works because people are respectful of each other and appreciative of each other. And and, uh, and that's also true on a, on a cellular level in Muli. So, um, yeah, we need more. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I think we pretty much covered our bases. We have this tradition, uh, since this podcast is called The Guest Book, uh, and we always ask our guests to uh, to sign the guest book uh, metaphorically and maybe say a little something about the experience. So, uh, Terry, what would you like to say to our audience? Well, I've been, it's been delightful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And the way I would sign the guest book would be con cariño y esperanza, with love and hope. I want immigrants to receive our love because with our love and with our help, they can find hope. That's beautiful. And Andrea? I think I'd like to sign it or to tell children and readers to take a chance and make a connection. Because that's what Luli does. She doesn't know um, any of the other children's languages, but she puts herself out there and she makes new friends. So um, we should all do that. Absolutely. I'm still doing that at the age of 67. So there you go. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for, for coming and uh, and participating in this. I've had a lot of fun. Uh, and it's just a continuation of the fun we've had making both of these books. Um, it's a great pleasure to talk to both of you. Likewise. Thank you so much, Neil. <laughs> and Terry, it was great. Great. Thanks again. Thank you.